chapter 2. Let me give you some context to what's going on, because this is like a new seven-week series uh, that we're doing. The book of Revelation, all right, the book of Revelation. I don't want to kind of, you know, get lost here, but it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. I don't know why that always, that always just bugs me. I know it shouldn't. But it's the book of Revelation, and it's the revelation of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus to John on this island called Patmos. And I'm so excited to start this and to go through this because Jesus speaks to seven different churches, to seven different gatherings of believers, and he has a specific word for them. Now, let me just say this. If you've never read the book of Revelation, please, like, during this time, read it. I know it's 22 chapters. It's apocalyptic writing style. It's different in how you read and maybe interpret than other books of the Bible. But this is the only book that says, if you read these words aloud, you will be blessed. It's the only book in the Bible that says, if you read these words aloud, you'll be blessed. It's also the only book of the Bible that ends, and there's a curse attached to it, if you basically chop it up and misuse it. Here's the idea. We would love for you guys to read this book, to study this book, to go through it. We find it necessary for us to say, Lord, you spoke to seven different churches, and we want to know what it is you'd say to our church. Now, this book, Revelation, the word revelation simply means the unveiling. Everyone say unveiling. Unveiling. All right. A lot of people think Revelation's a book about end times, which it is. But they'll primarily take Revelation and say, this is a book about things to come, which it it is. But let me just say this. This is the revelation of Jesus or the unveiling of Jesus. John's first interactions with Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, and he has a unique vision of Jesus. And it's actually the only description in the Bible of Jesus, even though it's in his glorious heavenly form. It's the only description of Jesus in the Bible. And this is called the revelation of Jesus. So my point is this. This is a book about Jesus first and foremost. Like I know we know this. John 5, 39, Jesus said, you read the scriptures, you think you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. So here's the point. Jesus, you read the Bible. You think the Bible is a a way to tell you how to get eternal life. No, the Bible is all about Jesus who is eternal life. We gotta understand that the whole book of the Bible, the whole Bible, the collection of books, is all about Jesus. And Revelation, I would say specifically, what's so beautiful about this is that we get an unveiling of Jesus, that church, Jesus is trying to reveal himself to John. Jesus gives us an unveiling of who he is. Now, why this is so important. My prayer is that as we go through these seven different churches, that you'd have a greater understanding of Jesus, that you would know Jesus, that you would walk with Jesus, that you'd see Jesus maybe in a different way. Maybe you'd experience Jesus in a different way. Maybe you have a limited view of Jesus. We do see Jesus a certain way in the four Gospels. He was the suffering servant who came to die. He was a sacrifice. But here in Revelation, we see him as that conquering king, coming back on that white horse, ruling and reigning with power and authority. And it's like a different vision of Jesus. Like we might know this about Jesus, but I really do believe that as Jesus is speaking to these churches, He wants them to deeply understand and know who he is. And we're going to see him do that by always giving a description of himself. So the reason why I'm I'm, I'm saying this is we're going to miss the point if we don't see Jesus. We need to see Jesus in every scripture, every chapter, every verse. We need to find the person of Jesus. And listen, this is called the unveiling of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus. I would love for our church to get a better glimpse of Jesus, of his goodness, of his glory, of his power, of his authority in our lives. Like, Lord, let us have a better glimpse of who you are. Amen? 
This is of Jesus, a revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus. Now, I want to give you some context again. The guy who wrote this is a guy named John. You, you know John. This is the same John, one of the 12 disciples, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the guy who wrote the gospel of John and said, I'm the guy whom Jesus loves. I remember telling my son that. I'm like, Micah, John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that cool? He's like, wait, Jesus only loved John? I'm like, no. It's just, that's just like what he wanted to go by. I don't know. Like when you're a kid, you're trying to process it. But John, I love this, gave himself this nickname. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, John was probably the youngest of the 12 disciples, and John would go on to write, obviously, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. It's believed at this point that John was actually about 90, 90 years old when he wrote this book, maybe up to 100 years old when he wrote this book. That's what most people would say when he wrote this, when he wrote this, uh, this apocalyptic book. The, re- the reason why this is important is we want to know that John knew Jesus as a disciple, he literally laid his head on Jesus' chest, but now in the book of Revelation, he sees Jesus and he falls over as a dead man. John still had things to learn about Jesus. If John still had things to learn about Jesus, you better believe that we still have things to learn about Jesus. If John had an encounter with Jesus, years after walking with Jesus, you better believe that we still need an encounter with Jesus. John still experienced Jesus. John got to see Jesus in a new light. John had this revelation of Jesus. And my prayer again for us is that we too, like John, would just have this encounter with Jesus as a church where he'd reveal who who he is and just speak directly to our community. They'd speak to us, that he'd use his word to guide us, to shape us, to form us, to lead us to what he wants to say to us today. Now, John was exiled on this island called Patmos uh, when he has the revelation of Jesus. Patmos is a little island off the coast of like Greece and Turkey. It's a beautiful little island right now. You can go visit. It's beautiful. Uh, But at the same time, not so much then. It was more of like an exile, labor camp, kind of like a prison island, all right? And John is there when he has this vision. And John, in Revelation 1-9, he says, I, John, was on the island that is called Patmos. So we know the author, we know where he was, and then we're going to see in this book that Jesus is specifically speaking to seven churches. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, just read it up here, he says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Jesus goes, hey, what you see, put it in a letter, give it to these seven churches. And so these are real churches with real people. Now we do have like a little map, just so you can kind of envision where this was. Uh, the seven churches of Revelation are, take place in Asia Minor, which we, is modern day Turkey. The Bible might call it Asia at different points, but it took place in Turkey. You can actually do the seven churches of Revelation tour and see these sites, real churches, real people. And, and I just want you to just kind of get a visual for this. We're gonna look at the church of Ephesus today, which was really on the coast. And we'll talk about Ephesus more in a little bit, just to get a, a better uh, understanding of this. So as we study Revelation, here's a couple key ideas. Jesus, and who does this apply to? Jesus was really speaking to, number one, specific, a specific church. Like, these are real people, man. The church of Ephesus, real church, real elders, real pastor, a real people that Jesus was speaking to. We gotta know that. Like, Jesus was, really had a direct word for them. That's incredible. Jesus cares enough to know what's going on in the local church and to speak into that local church. So we know that this applies to this, a specific church. But it also applies to the church as a whole. This would apply to the church as a whole. You're going to see this today and every time we read one of those seven letters. But this, Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this applies to, to the church as a whole. Yes, it's real people, specific church, but we have to go, Jesus, you spoke to them. You say if we have ears, let us hear. It applies to the church as a whole. Next is this. Some say this. I'm going to put a little asterisk by this. Some say it speaks of the church age 
or it speaks prophetically. Uh, I used to more kind of lean into this, less so now, but it's worth mentioning since a lot of people do talk about this. Uh, there's a lot of commentators, a lot of scholars who do believe these seven churches, yes, they were real churches, but they also believe they spoke of seven different church eras or seven different church stages. And usually, for the most part, we'll kind of put it up, that here's how like the seven stages are broken down. Ephesus, which is a real church, they would say, uh, it speaks of like the first era of church history, which is just like just a, the, a revival, growth, uh, but they eventually left their first love. Is the early church. Next would be Smyrna. Smyrna is here, at, it's the persecuted church. They're under severe persecution. So some say Smyrna is like that second wave of church history when the church went through crazy persecution and that church went underground for a couple hundred years. And then, you know, in 312 when Constantine made Christianity legal and made it really the world religion, uh, that's when people view this as the compromising church. Pergamum, as we will study it, will be known for the compromise, as the compromising church. So some apply it to church history and on and on it goes. Some say it then leads to the dead church or uh, the, the corrupt church, the dead church, uh, the sixth church, which is a loving church. And they say that's from like 1750 to 1900, which is Philadelphia. The idea is like this is the first and second great awakening. This is the missionary movement. And they'd say that Laodicea, the last church Jesus speaks to, it's known as a lukewarm church. And they would say that's the era we live in today, the lukewarm church era. There are those who break it down like this. Now, uh, I used to like study this and think that was really interesting. Maybe for all of you Bible nerds, go, wow, that's really interesting. You can look into that more. I personally don't necessarily lean towards that uh, because I still believe that Smyrna, the persecuted church, still happens and happens in all parts of the world. Um, I think it's not fair to kind of come to this conclusion, but I'd rather let you know. Like, there's some people who believe this and try to break it down this way, and the interesting thing is like, hey, we're in the lukewarm church area. Don't you love to be in that area? Not really. Um, and some people try to make it fit that way. I just thought I'd bring it up because it's the start of these letters. I'm like, well, I might as well just share it with you guys. So fun fact, you're kind of like, oh, this is cool. I don't know. Um, lastly, is individually. Here's the thing. This applies to us individually. Jesus was speaking to a real church, real people. He's speaking to the church collectively, but obviously it applies to us. Like Jesus cares so much to speak to a church. We better have ears to hear what he wants to say to us. I mean, when I read through these letters, it is incredibly humbling because Jesus is speaking to real people. There's real issues. I mean, these churches had issues, man. But they also had good things about them. And Jesus celebrates those good things, and he calls out those bad things. And it's incredibly humbling because you go, man, Jesus has thoughts and opinions on the church. And that's not just thoughts and opinions, that's reality. Like, think about Jesus cares what happens in his church. This is his church. And he cares deeply about what's going on within the community of believers gathered together in his name. So honestly, when I read this, when I study this, it's incredibly humbling. It's a little bit scary. It's one of those things you go, okay, Lord, we invite you, and this is your church. You speak, you move. We want to give you place and room to work. This is your church. Amen? So uh, listen, we're going to read Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. We're going to read the first church Jesus speaks to, which is the church of Ephesus. And we're going to look at this church and kind of title it today is just Leaving Love. Leaving Love. Let's read. It's Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus is speaking, and he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. He's like, good job. Nevertheless, verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And let's just pray and invite the Lord to speak to us uh, right now. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this revelation of Jesus. Father, would you help us um, to have a, a clear understanding of your word for us today? God, help us to learn from these churches. God, we do want to invite you um, just to really, obviously, this is your church, so speak to us. God, correct me, correct us where we need to be corrected. Lord, let it just be done in grace and mercy. Jesus, for everyone in this room, I just ask that you would captivate their hearts, that you'd grab hold of their, their ears, their eyes, that they would just focus in on you right now, Jesus. Lord, you speak to us, you speak to these churches, and we really want to have ears right now to hear from you. So give us those ears, we ask, in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so there's seven letters to seven churches. Now, I'm sure everyone here has received a letter before. Letters are fun. Like a handwritten letter is a really fun thing to get. It's exhilarating, right? Like I'm sure if you're younger, let me just explain, by the way, a letter is kind of like a text message, but it's on paper. And paper's pretty cool too. You got to see it one time. Um, no, but you know, a letter, like in a handwritten letter in the mail, and just like reading it from someone, you're like, oh my gosh, I can see their, I can see they put time and care and thought and they do funny things over the eyes. Like it's really a meaningful thing when you see it. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I remember in third grade, uh, we used to do this thing. We're just a few weeks away from Valentine's, you know? And every Valentine's Day in like elementary school, we would do these things. We'd take a shoebox and you like cut a hole out of it and like you'd make it like a, make it into like an animal or something. Like we'd buy like a, like a lunch bag. I'd like put like a lion's face on it. And I'd take toilet paper rolls and put it on the bottom of the shoebox. And like, do you guys do this? No. Come on, no? We used to like make like Valentine's boxes where like people could get Valentine's and you like cut it up and like you put it on your desk and everyone like walks around in class and puts a Valentine in there. I thought it was so much fun. I like made the same line every year probably, but it was so much fun. And I remember in third grade, we were doing that. There's like times to like, you know, walk around with a Valentine. You either just had a Valentine or maybe a letter or maybe you had a candy, like all the, you know, I, I never did, I couldn't really afford candy, but we did a candy and that was always fun. And you put it in someone's box. I remember in third grade, uh, we did this like letter passing out thing, and I got two letters in my, my box from two girls that like wrote me a love letter. And I was like, oh, I was like so excited. I can remember the, the feelings like reading this love letter and like looking up and like, who is it? Like I had no idea. And I, I really remember just walking around the classroom like where you'd have your name that you wrote out and I would like hold the letter up to see if it was their handwriting and it wasn't the girl I liked. So that made me sad. Um, but I just remember doing that. Like getting a letter is just fun, man. It's exhilarating. Actually, I remember even in second grade, my good buddy liked a girl that I liked, but he didn't know. And he's like, hey dude, I can't, I'm afraid. Can you give her this love letter? Like it's a love letter. Like I read it. I'm like, hey, man, I just, I just don't think she'll like you. I just don't think, I don't, because I, I liked her. I remember, like, I'm not giving it to her because you're my competition now. Um, but there's something about just, like, that love letter and that letter experience where you go, man, it's fun. It's exciting. It's for me, right? Think about this. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. Like, really, yes, John wrote it, but Jesus says, write this and deliver this to these churches. I want you to feel the weight of that. Jesus wrote a letter to a church. I couldn't imagine someone walking these doors and be like, I have a letter to you from Jesus. I can't imagine the humble, humbling and be like, hey, church, this is, this is what I have against you. Like, this is what you're doing good. 
This is where you need to grow. There's, there'd be, as a, as a pastor, be like, oh gosh, like I feel the weight of that. I just, as just being a follower of Jesus, I feel the weight of that. I mean, but Jesus loves us enough to say, I love you. Here's where you're doing well. Amen, good job, keep it going. Here's where you're going off and here's what it's doing in your life. And I love you so much to speak into that. I love you so much to remind you of that. And I want you to see this, that Jesus loves the church enough to speak into it, to care for it, to not just let it be and go on and go, go astray. And so honestly, in this time, we gotta go, Jesus, what is it you say to these churches? What is it you say to us? How do you want us to apply it? Like, I don't, I don't wanna miss out on this. Like, Jesus spoke to churches, and we, you better believe we can learn from these churches the good and the bad, so that's what we're gonna do. So here's what I wanna point out. As we break down every single letter the next seven weeks, uh, there really is a, a common flow to the way Jesus addressed these churches. It's really interesting. Like, the way that Jesus addressed the churches, broke it down, there's like seven components in almost every uh, church that he spoke to. Some are have a little bit less, but we'll walk through these really quick just so you can see them up here. Number one is this. There's always a destination. I know that's obvious, but who is it written to? We'll talk about that. Uh, number two is there's a description of Jesus. In every letter, you're gonna see a description of Jesus to some extent. Jesus introduces who he is in, in a different way to all seven of these churches, and it's worth studying. Number three, you're gonna see a commendation or praise. Jesus is gonna say, here's some good things you're doing. Jesus finds the good in every church but Sardis and Laodicea. So, if there's two churches we don't want to be like, it's Sardis and Laodicea. These are the two churches, that's the fifth and the seventh church that Jesus says, I, he commends every church, like, good job, except these two. Uh, the next is this admonition or this rebuke of some sort. Uh, it's this, you're, you're going to see this for every church but Smyrna and for Philadelphia. Smyrna is known as a persecuted church. Philadelphia is a loving church. If there's two churches we want to be like, it would be Smyrna or Philadelphia. You're like, Josiah, maybe you want to be like Smyrna, the persecuted church, but I would rather be like Philadelphia. Me too. I'd rather be like Philadelphia, known for our love. Uh, but you know, I'll take Smyrna. It's the only two churches he has nothing negative to say about. Nothing to call out. And then you're going to see like an exhortation or an incredibly strong warning. It's like some sort of exhortation uh, slash warning to some extent. That's what we're going to see. And uh, then next you're gonna see some sort of allusion, meaning there's gonna be some sort of a reference to his coming. Like Jesus in some way, for the most part, at Ephesus we don't see that, but for the most part you're gonna see like some sort of reference to his coming. And then lastly, there's a promise to every single church. He says, if you overcome, then I will. And there's some sort of promise. And it's exciting because every single promise is different. And it's beautiful and it's worth studying and looking at what is the promise Jesus gives to the churches that overcome. So we're going to break down the letter every week kind of in this way. We'll try to follow that flow. So let's do that. Number one is this. Uh, there's a destination. So who is he writing to and what's this about? Look at Revelation chapter 2 again, verse 1. Revelation 2, verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. All right, let's stop there. Like, really? Already? Yeah. All right. The, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, this word angel, it's this word Messenger. Some, there's a lot of like, difference on how this is interpreted. Some people do believe that there's an angel over these churches, like a, a genuine angel, an angelic being from heaven, and this letter's to them. That, that could be possible. Uh, the idea is that maybe each church that Jesus has, there's some sort of, almost like Matthew 18 talks about some sort of angel that watches over that. And that's possible. I'd say the majority of opinion seems to believe that this idea of angel or messenger, the word messenger, is the same used word for John the Baptist. He was a messenger, same Greek word, used for John the Baptist, that this is actually a letter written to some elder, pastor, a leader of the, that church. 
So it's possible to the angel. I would ter- interpret it more as this is to the, the elder, the messenger, like a John the Baptist type of the church or an elder pastor of the church. He says to the angel, angel of the church of, and there's it's always that introduction. And then this is Ephesus. Let's talk about Ephesus, our destination. Uh, Ephesus was one of the largest and wealthiest, not one of, it's actually the largest and wealthiest in Asia, specifically at that time. I mean, incredible wealth. It was a port city. Some of the largest ships in the world at that time would dock and could dock in Ephesus. Honestly, Ephesus and South Florida, I think, are incredibly similar. There's a lot of wealth, a lot of travel there, a lot of commerce. Usually where there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of sin. And so there's a lot of prostitution, pagan worship, sorcery, witchcraft, all sorts of things were welcome there. Uh, the, The Ephesians... The people of Ephesus, uh, they, were, they liked athletics. They had the Pan-Ionian Games there. It's like a form of the Olympic Games, like a lesser version of that. So right outside of it, there would be some big gamings happening. They had a huge theater that you can still go and see to this day, where they'd have arts and productions, things like that. Uh, they had uh, one of the, I think it was the second largest or third largest library in the Roman Empire was there. So they cared about education and learning. Uh, you can go and actually see the Ephesus, or see the, the Ephesus, see this, the front of the library. My wife and I had the privilege to go to Ephesus, and it really was one of the coolest ancient ruin sites we've ever been to. I mean, just huge, from the theater to the front of the library, beautiful, beautiful city. I mean, you can almost just imagine what it would look like in its heyday. I mean, incredible wealth there. You know, this is true. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. Is like a Greek god, and, you know, Roman god, and that kind of thing. But you see, like, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. Like, the Ephesians were known. I mean, they were really, really known. I mean, their reputation went out. And I just want us to see kind of who Jesus is speaking to. And let's keep this in mind. Ephesus should remind us of the book of Ephesians, right? Like, Paul wrote a, a book of the Bible to this city before Jesus spoke to this church. Paul wrote an entire book there. Let's think about this. Paul spent three years at least, minimum, if not more, there in the city of Ephesus. Paul raised up elders and pastors like Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Paul invested up in people. He raised up people. There's other leaders under him. I mean, this had generational, like, great leadership. Paul, Timothy, others. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I want you to understand who Jesus is speaking to and writing to. Uh, even that, I, I want us to get this idea even for the church to be birthed there, it shows it's birthed in a lot of sin and sorcery and evil things. Like, let me read this to you. It's in Acts chapter 19, verse 19. And so when Paul went there and preached the gospel and people got saved, it says this, many of those who practiced magic, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all and they counted up the value of all those books on magic burned, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Paul preaches the gospel, man. There's like a revival. It took a while, but there's a revival that breaks out. People who are worshiping pagan gods, foreign gods, sorcery, witchcraft, they're like, let's just burn it. This is, this is evil. This is evil stuff. I, it's really cool. When you read Acts, you can see the, the birth of Ephesus, and God had to like counteract the Ephesians evil, which is God's power. Like it says in the book, it says in the city of Ephesus that Paul had unique miracles that were displayed there. His handkerchiefs were used to heal people. It says that evil spirits were cast out while he was there. Like, there's a lot of wickedness and evil there, so God showed up in supernatural ways to counteract that wicked and evilness. And there's just a revival that was happening there. So much so that guys who worked and built little idols of Diana, and they were just like working for that, 
they're furious going, we're losing our business. We got to do something about this. Listen to this. It's Acts 19 verse 26. It says, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that there are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is the trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may, uh, Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were filled with wrath, and they cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This guy gets so mad at, like, this revival that takes place because they're looking at their beautiful temple, one of the seven wonders of the world, and they're going, man, we're going to lose business. Like, it's about money. It's about power. It's about authority. This Paul guy is ruining it. And so they're like, we got to stop this. They actually drag out Alexander and other Christians into the court before Paul can get there, before they drag him out. And they put him on trial, beat him, want to do things. And then it says this in Acts 19.34, and all with one voice, they cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours, imagine that. Imagine they drew a Christian out. Imagine they drew us out one day, throw us in front of like a, some sort of stadium. And the people are so mad by what they're seeing in the name of Jesus. They're like, yeah, well, what does chance our God? And they're saying, great is the goddess of Diana of the Ephesians. Like, there's chanting out how great Diana is of the Ephesians for two hours straight, this chant. My point is there was deep-rooted wickedness there. God did some amazing things. The book of Ephesians there, Timothy's let there, and now Jesus has a letter for the church. And Jesus wants to speak to the church. My thing is I really want us to, like, put ourselves in that situation. Like, Jesus knew this church, loved this church, spoke to this church. He cared so deeply about this church. And then it goes on, number two, here's a description of Jesus. Jesus describes himself. It's the end of verse one, Revelation two, verse one. Read with me. It says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. You go, that's a really weird way to describe yourself. What is Jesus talking about? You know, I'm so thankful when the Bible actually interprets the Bible for us, right? So Revelation chapter one, verse 20, we'll put up here, but you can just read. Revelation one, verse 20, it says this, these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So stay with me. Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What is that? The seven messengers, he goes over my hands, and I'm walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. Revelation 120, define that for us. Here's why I think this is so important. Jesus goes, I have these messengers, these leaders, these pastors in my hand, and I walk amongst my church. Honestly, I want you to feel the weight of that. Jesus goes, I'm, I'm in the midst and the presence of my church. Like, I'm in, I'm in the presence of, this, of these communities. You know, I really wholeheartedly believe that there's something unique about a group of believers gathered together in Jesus' name to worship, to pray, to confess sin, to seek him, to call upon him, to study his word, to worship, to sing a lot. I just think there's something very unique. I do believe that God inhabits the praises of his people. I believe that God's presence is different when gather, a group of believers gather than when you're in private. I know that people will say this verse out of context, and I understand, but I, too, I do believe that when two or three are gathered together in his name, he is in the midst. I know the context. Trust me, I know. But at the same time, I believe that's a very true statement. My point is there's something really unique when we gather in Jesus' name. Jesus described himself as I hold these messengers in my hand and I walk around the midst of the seven churches. What I see is Jesus cares deeply about the church. You know what I find so interesting? about this last year is that I just feel like the church has been divided like it's never been divided. 
The church has been separated from gathering like it's never been separated from gathering. Somehow the church throughout history has always found a way to gather among, amongst persecution. This is like the only time in church history that we've actually like seen something like this, where, you know, think about different plagues that have plagued the church. Like when the plague goes around, Christians go into it, usually contract the plague and die. I'm not recommending we do that. I'm thankful for professionals and doctors and things like that. But Christians were known for like helping and, and going into it. Now we're like, okay, the best thing we can do is just stay away from each other. I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong, but what I'm saying is this. It's been a really unique year from the church being divided physically, emotionally, spiritually. And what I see is Jesus walking in the presence of his church. What I see is Jesus loves the church. What I see is that Jesus loves to be in the presence of the church. He goes, I hold these messengers in my hand and I'm walking around the seven lampstands. That's a beautiful symbolic thing I want us to hear. What do you think that's symbolic for? Jesus goes, I'm in the, I'm in the church's midst. I'm among the church. That is so humbling to think when we gather together. That Jesus goes, this is my church, I hold the leaders in my hand, and I walk amongst these seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. Man, church, I want us to feel the weight of that. What a beautiful thing. Jesus loves us so much, he goes, I'm going to be in your presence. I'm going to walk, I'm going to be there. Like, I'm walking amongst them. I want us to hear this language that's used. Amen? Like, this is beautiful. To think that Jesus cares so much, he goes, I'm going to be in the midst of these group of believers gathered together in my name. I, I walk among the seven golden lampstands. Now, I'll keep going. Here's another thought, though, behind this. Um, this is interesting. Kind of later, we, like, refound this. But um, there's a coin of Domitian. Domitian was the Caesar of this day when uh, John would be writing this. Domitian, like every other, we'll talk about it more next week under persecution. Like every other Caesar, just was crazy, self-absorbed, thought he's a god. And so on this coin, you see uh, Domitian. You see him sitting on the globe with seven stars around him. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You can see this, this on the coin. The mission on the globe, seven stars. Uh, some say this, and I think it's just interesting, that maybe Jesus obviously knows what's happening culturally in that moment in time. goes, no, 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 I hold these seven stars. And I'm the true ruler. I'm the true king of kings. Uh, he, this guy can put whatever he wants on an image, but it's me who holds these seven stars in my hand. Maybe it's a reflection of what was culturally happening. Maybe not. I just found that interesting. Another fun nerd thing. All right, let's keep going. So that's who it's written to, right? We know it's Ephesus. We know the description of Jesus. He's like, I'm in the midst of these churches. Next, we're going to see number three, which is his commendation, his praise. He's like, good job, guys. Here's what you're doing well. Would you read verse two with me? Here's Jesus praising the church. Verse two, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have per, uh, persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Man, I love this. I love how Jesus starts off with praise. How Jesus says, hey guys, this is what you're doing well. You know, the Bible is a, a double-edged sword. Notice that before the warning comes, before he calls them out, there's like this like, hey, you're doing this really well. I see this in you. And like the Bible does have that. I don't know if you ever read the Bible and there's times where you feel like really encouraged and there's times where you feel like you're like slowly dying, right? There's like the Bible does that. When I read it, I go, oh my gosh, I'm prideful ego. Like, and then God's like trying to kill my flesh and at the same time like encourage my spirit. And this is how he does. He's just encouraging them and then he's gonna call them out in just a second. But let's just do this. Let's talk about the things they did well. We can learn from the things they did well. Here's four things they essentially did well. He's like, your works, your labor, uh, that you have patiently endured, he talks a lot about their endurance. And he goes, and you've tested false apostles or teachers. So let's just learn from them. They did some things really well. Listen, they worked. They worked hard. He goes, I know your works. He acknowledges the good things they've done. And then more specifically, he says your labor, that's like you're working to the point of exhaustion. Notice how he says you've labored in, for my name's sake. Like they actually did some, like they worked hard for Jesus. 
Like they labored for his name. There's some things that are praiseworthy about that. A lot of people don't work in the name of Jesus. They might work for themselves. But he's like, good job, guys. You've, done it. you've worked really hard. You've labored. You've given a lot. You know, we need a church that will work for Jesus, that will labor for Jesus, that will labor for the gospel. That's a, a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. He commends them. He's like, good job. You've labored for my name. Like you've worked really hard to the point of exhaustion. There's some things that are really praiseworthy here. Absolutely. And then he even says this. You've patiently endured. He's like, you've been patient and you've endured. Think about it this way. Um, it's easy to like follow Jesus for a week. It's really easy to follow Jesus for like a month. It's really hard to follow Jesus year after year after year. I mean, this is probably 30, 40 years after the book of Ephesians was written. And he's like, man, you guys have patiently endured. Like you followed me. I don't know if you've ever had one of those Jesus moments, like maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you didn't, but maybe you went to like a summer camp experience and like you had like a week with Jesus and you come back and you're like, I just love Jesus. And like a week later, you're like, eh, I'm okay. Like, I don't know if you've ever had those like passionate moments, maybe even at church and on Sunday you're good and then Monday work starts and you're like, yeah, what was yesterday's message about? Like, I don't, I don't really know how this works for you guys, but it is interesting, right? Like, that's, that's prone to all of us. This was not that kind of church. This church was like, they patiently endured. The word that is used here in the Greek, and it's used a lot of other places, I love this. It's hupomone, which just means to remain under, which I find a beautiful way to describe patience. Patience, he's saying, you've, you've remained under difficult circumstances. What happens when there's difficult circumstances? Usually we want to run. Usually we want out. They didn't. They're like, we don't care if this is hard. We're going to patiently endure. It is something we can learn from in just 2020. It is hard right now to patiently endure. I get it. It might be hard just to wake up, show up. It might, it might be very difficult in this weird year, this weird climate we're in. I would encourage you, let's learn from the Ephesians. They patiently endured. They remained under. There's something beautiful about people who just have that endurance. I love when I see people in their faith, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, who just ran their race well, who loved Jesus well, and you go, I want to learn from that life. This was that kind of church, man. They patiently endured. There are some things, and Jesus really like, emphasized that. They're, they had some great endurance. That is a beautiful thing. Let's learn from that. But then lastly, he points this out a few different ways. He's like, you've tested false apostles. You've called them out. You haven't put up with it. He's like, you haven't allowed bad teaching to get into your church. Good job. In fact, in chapter two, verse six, you can read it. He says, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He's like, you've seen these people called the Nicolaitans come in and their doctrine, their deeds, and you even hate their deeds, which I also hate. He's told them like at different times, like, good job, man. You've been put up with false teaching. You know what's really cool about this, at least to me? Like, it's fun when you put the context of the Bible together. But if you remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders, to the elders in Ephesus. And Paul gave one of the most gladiator, brave heart type of speeches I think you'll ever read in the Bible. Paul's like, guys, I'm about to be in chains, taken to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's showing me I'm going to be in chains. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I want to finish my race with joy and testify of the gospel the grace of God. Paul has like one of the most epic speeches I feel like ever spoken. And he's pre preaching to these elders. And then it says he's filled with many tears. and He's crying. He's like, his heart is breaking from them because he knows he's leaving them. He knows he might die and never see them again. And it says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know this. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up 
speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. First of all, Paul loved this church. You hear his heart. He's like, three years I spent my life just loving you, pouring into you, warning you that there'd be like, things like this to come. And he says, as soon as I leave, savage wolves are gonna come in among you. Like false teachers are gonna come in among you. Know what's really cool that this shows us? Jesus shows us that they actually heard that message from Paul. Jesus' words is like, you have not received false teachers. You've actually rebuked that. You didn't like, you didn't receive any of that. I love that about the Ephesians. I love that they hear Paul's heart and they're like, we're gonna fight for good doctrine here. We're gonna fight for truth here. We're not gonna let let bad teachings here. Do you get that? That's a good quality. That's a good thing. And I, I think it's worth noting that Jesus is like, I see this in you. Good job. Let's talk about this really quick. I want to talk about some false teaching uh, in our day, all right? Because uh, let's talk about really, even this, the Nicolaitans. We really don't know who they are. You're like, what does that mean? They hate the Nicolaitans' deeds. There's kind of two main ideas, by the way, because you're like, what's the Nicolaitans? If you want, you can take note. Uh, the Nicolaitans, it means this. The, Nic- the Nikos uh, means conquest or ruler, and Laetans refers to lady. So some people mean, think this means um, they're trying to rule the common person. Nicolaitans, they're trying to conquest or rule the common person, the laity. That they're trying to basically usurp their authority over people rather than love and serve their people. So the Nicolaitans could just be terrible leaders. That could be one idea. Another idea is that Nicolaitans, that their belief system was very similar to Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, essentially that you're, you know, your uh, spirit is good, your body is evil. So listen, you can worship God with your spirit and you can, with your body, sleep with a prostitute throughout the week. It doesn't really matter what you do with your body. So Gnosticism basically taught like your body and your spirit are different. And the Bible says, you know, body, soul, spirit, all of them are Jesus's. And so maybe the Nicolaitans are people that were like, go ahead, sin it up, do whatever you want with your body, as long as you're worshiping God. And maybe that was the bad theology corrupting them. We're not quite sure, but here's what Jesus does say. You hated their deeds like I also hated them. Did Jesus hate these people? No. Did they hate these people? No. They hate, he says they hated their deeds as I also hated their deeds. Christians, we are obviously, we're called to love our enemies. We're called to love people who think different. We're called to love the person, absolutely. But notice they hated their deeds as Jesus, as I've hated their deeds. There's something that uh, within the heart of us that we should love what love God loves and hate what God hates. And we see this within this group of church, this church. It was a healthy, beautiful thing. So here's why I'm bringing this up. That was their problems, what's our problems? I don't know. I try to jot down a few ideas. What are some false teachings in our day? What are some ideas that try to infiltrate the church? And this is not all of them. There are probably more that I want to get into, but I don't have time. Um, here's, I think, a false teaching. Jesus' love for you means he agrees with your lifestyle and personal decisions. I think this is a false teaching in our day. Jesus' love for you means he agrees with your lifestyle and your personal decisions. Listen, Jesus fully loves you the way you are, absolutely. It's not that you have to clean your life up and Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you fully, but he doesn't have to agree or affirm your decisions. Jesus loves us so much, he doesn't want us to obviously stay that way or continue in our sin or continue in self-destructive behavior. He goes, I love you so much, I can allow you to continue those things. He hated their deeds, as they also did. Here's another, I think, false idea. Um, People say this, we need to update our message to reflect what's culturally acceptable. I feel like something that's kind of taught, it's like, yo, 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 the Bible's kind of outdated, man. I mean, let's be honest. This is like an old book, it's pretty archaic. I mean, it's almost like a caveman wrote this thing. Like, we need to update our message to reflect what's culturally acceptable, what's culturally relevant. We gotta just update it to that. That's a, listen, this is a timeless book that needs no updating. Does it, do we need to work on interpreting this book? Absolutely, There's, it's hard work to interpret the scriptures true and right. But at the same time, this needs no update from me or anyone else. Uh, another false teaching I believe in our day, at our time. Uh, Jesus obviously affirms what American secular culture affirms. What I mean by that is, we have like a postmodern worldview or 
secular worldview, a humanistic worldview, that can bleed into the church, and we can see other philosophies and ideologies bleed into the church, and we assume because that's acceptable amongst most people, Jesus must obviously accept that, and obviously not the case. I'm so thankful, again, this is an unchanging book, and I'm thankful it's, it's not ashamed to call it any philosophy or any worldview that's counter to it, but I think there is this idea that Jesus was just kind of that nice hippie guy with feathery hair, and he's just going to be like, yo, you do you, man. Like, that is not Jesus, all right? He's not going to say, you do you, and fist bump you. He's just not, all right? We're going to see Jesus who speaks truth, who's full of grace and truth, and we got to have a better picture of Jesus. Um, some people have said this, I've heard to me, like, say, hey, listen, some things are just off limit for Jesus. Yeah, he wants to be my God, and yeah, he's a great teacher, but, you know, he doesn't need every area. He just needs those religious areas. Like, no, nothing's off limits for Jesus. If Jesus wants to speak into your personal decisions, your sexuality, your finances, your whatever, he can speak into every area. He's Lord and King of all. Nothing is off limits for Jesus. Um, here's one idea that I think bleeds into the church. Man is basically good, and the gospel is mostly about God helping us to help ourselves. No, man is not basically good. I have some good friends who I love dearly. They go, no, no, but man basically is good and wants to see good. No, we're wicked, we're evil, we're dead. I, I'm, not, I'm not basically good. My heart is disgusting and wicked. I'm dead whose Jesus has made alive again. Um, that's what we need. We need someone not to help us, but to resurrect us. And the Bible doesn't preach that God is trying to help us better help ourselves. He's trying to make us alive because we're dead. And we've got to be clear on that gospel message. And here's the last thing. Um, you can be a Christian, but you don't need to be a disciple. I think what I've kind of heard in the church is you can be a Christian, but you don't need to be a disciple. Like, just be a Christian. Just believe the right things as long as you have the right beliefs. I got to be honest. I'm really frustrated by this word Christian many times. I mean, I get that in the book of Acts, they're called Christian first in Antioch, and there's a few different times we were called Christians early on. But really, for the most part, we're disciples. We're followers of Jesus. We're apprentices of Jesus. We're here to say we're going to follow Jesus in every area of our life. When people act like I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple, that makes no sense. That's an oxymoron. Like, if you're a Christian, you better be a disciple. You're going to be a disciple if you're a Christian. It's not like, oh, that's an option for me for really serious Christians. No, like, this is going to be a part of our life of who we are. So, why am I saying this? This church did something really well. They labored, they worked hard, they endured, and they called out bad doctrine. We can learn from that, absolutely. But you can have, a re you can have really good doctrine and have a heart that's still far from God. And that was them. So let's look at number four. It's the admonition. It's the rebuke. Look at Revelation chapter two, verse four. It says this, nevertheless, Jesus said to them, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I can't imagine hearing that for the first time, like from Jesus as the church. Even when I read that, when you read that, what, what comes into your heart and mind? He goes, guys, you've done so many good things. You work hard, you labor hard, you endure. You have actually good doctrine. Like you fight for truth, but you've left your first love. You can have the best doctrine, best theology in the world, but your heart is still far from God. We can still miss the point. Notice that he says you've, you've left your first love. He doesn't be like, hey, and you lost your first love. It's like, hey, where'd I go? I lost my love. Like, you left it. Like, you did this. You left it. The point, though, I think for us, that we should hear and take to heart, is Jesus, you, you obviously want the heart. You want our heart. You want intimacy with you. You want us to know you. You know, it's weird how we can see this. We can see kids maybe go to Bible college who had a great heart for the Lord. They come back, and it's like all they care about is doctrine and knowledge and information. And then you're like, you don't even love people anymore. You're not even kind anymore. Like, what happened to you? Like, Bible college ruined you. That happens. My, my point, and not that it always happens, my point is we got to be aware how, like, you can have the best doctrine, best theology, and your heart's still far from God. You can have a church. We can have a Bible teaching church, Bible preaching church, go through the words of God, exegetically break it down. We want to do that, but we can still have a heart that's far from God that we don't grieve over what God grieves over. Our heart doesn't break over what God's heart breaks over. We don't have the same burdens that God has a burden for. Like, church, we gotta say, I, I don't wanna leave my first love. I mean, this is what's happening. 
And I would say they've left their first love just being Jesus. Like, he's like, you've left your first love, like me, who I am. You know, this is one of those things where you have to and I have to, and, and it's a humbling thing to go, Jesus, have I, have I left my first love? Because have you left your first love? Do you remember what it was like when you first maybe put your faith in Jesus? And you're like, I can't wait to go to church. I can't wait to sing. I can't wait to read. I just want to read the Bible until I fall asleep. I just want to, like, maybe you've had those seasons where you're like, oh, I just love it. I can't get enough. And you're like, where is that? I'm not saying that it, it needs to be exactly that way. Kids can change things. Life can change things. I get that. But have you left your first love? Is Jesus the first priority of your heart? When you wake up in the morning, man, is it like, hey, good morning, Jesus. How can I please you today? Hey, Jesus, love you. I want to spend some time with you right now. What is your first love? Your first love. What's your first priority? What's taking the throne of your heart? What is it as soon as you leave here, you can't, you're just thinking about even right now? Maybe it's like you love Jesus, but, man, I just want to make some more money, and I want to have a lot of power and influence. Maybe it's like I just want to do what I want to do. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I don't want to be in community. I want to just do what I want. Like, what is, that, what is your first love that you're just clinging to above Jesus? He goes, this is what I have against you, church. You've left your first love. This is the thing that our church that we have to learn from. I mean, this is the, like, to me, this is the crux of the matter. What we can learn from the Ephesians is they left their first love. They did so many things well, but they still had the biggest heart issue, and they left their first love. And let it not be said of us that we've left our first love. Now, Jesus, in his love and his grace, warns them. And I believe if you have that question, you go, how do I know if I've left my first love? Like, what does that look like? I love this quote. Listen to this. One pastor said it this way. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disaster, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus was not there? Is, or what we're living for is, man, I just don't want to go to hell when I die. I just want to make sure that when I die, I'm in heaven, and I can have a new body, a new life. You know, don't they, doesn't Jesus prepare a place for me? And here's the thing, church. He goes, do you love heaven or do you love Jesus? Like, do you, are you craving something God can do for you or are you craving God? And honestly, I think this is the great error. In, this has been my life. I think this has been the great error in the church's life. We've preached the gospel that, hey, you don't want to die and go to hell, do you? So believe in God. No, that's not the gospel. Like, enter into loving union with Jesus. Like, enter into a pathway of walking with Jesus. Enter into just a relationship filled with the person. Yes, of course, he's the way, the truth, and life. Of course, he's the way to heaven. But he's more than just, like, our ticket into a cool place. Do we get that? Jesus is more than just access. And that's like, I really want to go there. Jesus is like, yo, I got tickets. You want a ticket? Like, come on. Like, no, he's more than that. He's more than the friend that gives us tickets somewhere. He goes, I am that. I am the way. He invites us in to relationship with him. The problem with this church was they left their first love. Jesus maybe became something else to them. This can happen in my heart. This can happen in all of our hearts. We can't think that's them, not us. This could be us, right? So what does Jesus say to them? Let's look at the, first, the fifth thing. Here's the uh, exhortation and warning. It's chapter 1, verse 5. He says, therefore, listen, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So Jesus in his grace goes, hey, you've left your first love. Here's what you need to do. Remember. Uh, repent and do what you first did. I love that. He's like, remember, repent, and repeat. Like, do what you first did. So let's talk about this. Remember. Like, remember back to what it was to be an early Christian. Remember those times when you felt Jesus' like, love in your life. Remember those times Jesus just said, you're mine. Like, remember that. Take that in. 
Remember that, and then repent. You know, repentance is, I think, one of the most abused words or one of the most, like, misunderstood negative words. I grew up in Southern California where I would see a lot of times people in the street corners, like, hold up a sign, like, repent or go to hell. And it's like, oh, like, I just didn't, that word repent was kind of, like, gross to me. I'm like, I don't want to see that. Here, repentance, I think, is one of the most beautiful graces God has given us. Repentance is just turn back to Jesus. You know, your heart was pursuing something out. Turn back to Jesus. But let Jesus take the rightful place in your life again. Repentance is one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. This is the first word in John the Baptist. His ministry. This is the first word in Jesus' ministry. It's this word of come back to God. Come back to your creator, who you were made for, what you were made for. Come back. It's such a beautiful concept. He says, remember, remember what it's like. Some of you need to remember just that those moments with Jesus was like when you first got saved and you're first understanding these truths. And then now maybe you're arrogant or prideful or go, I've heard this message before. Maybe you've been in that place and God's like, no, no, no. Your heart, your heart is just far from me. Remember, repent and do what you first did. There is something healthy about that. When you, maybe you've been in marriage for a while. I'm coming up on 13 years of marriage, which sounds so crazy. Like, oh my gosh, my marriage is like a teenager. What the heck? It's weird. Um, but it's crazy. You know, when you think about marriage, you're kind of going, you know, when you have those moments that are difficult, you're like, what do we do? We dated. We had fun. We laughed. We enjoyed each other. We don't got to do the things we first did. We got we to make meaningful carve-out time for each other. You know, we got to do that with the Lord. Let me carve out some time with the Lord. Let me get the meaningful time with him. Let me do what I first did. This is what Jesus invites us into. I, I love that because I don't know if you've ever felt to a place where like, Jesus, I've gone so far, I can't repent. Or if I do repent, will you really accept me? Of course he will. He tells us, he invites us into repentance. I'm so thankful Jesus says, you repent. Like I'm inviting you to this idea of repenting and being right with me again. Of course, if you repent, God will accept you. Of course, if you repent, God will take you in. He tells us to do it. He's like waiting, like, come on, do what you first did. Do those works you first did. Remember, repent, repeat. He invites us into this thing. It is so beautiful. And, and really, here's the last thing. Because he says, if you have an ear, let you hear. Let the, if you have an ear, I want you to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus is going, this Holy Spirit is speaking to the churches, and right now we need ears to hear. Like right now, this is not just the church of Ephesus. But maybe right now in your life, God's saying, I need you to remember and I need you to repent and do what you first did. So listen, he goes, if you do this, there is a promise. And I want to read the promise. And this is such a beautiful promise. There's seven promises, seven different promises to these seven churches, all of them unique and beautiful and reflect the gospel in some way. So listen to this. Here's the first one. It's verse seven. Here's the promise. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says, to him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Did you hear that? To the person who overcomes, I will give you the tree of life in paradise in the midst of God. Don't get lost. Maybe you have the same question I have. How do you overcome? To him who overcomes, I'll give you this. And he always says this, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. How do we overcome? John gives us the answer. So you have the answer for the next seven weeks. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. John says it this way. John says, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. To him who overcomes, you will eat of the tree of life. How do we overcome? To him who believes, or her who believes, that Jesus is the Son of God, you overcome. It is so simple. How are we more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? The answer, in Christ Jesus. How do we overcome? By our faith in him who is the Son of God. So he goes, listen, if you overcome, 
It's by putting your faith in Jesus. Let me just make it clear. Um, following Jesus is not, I put my faith in him 20 years ago. Following Jesus, I put my faith in him. I'm putting my faith in him. I will put my faith in him. Following Jesus is, is salvation. Is I, it did it. He, it is done. It is finished. God saved me. God is saving me. God will save me. I put my faith in Jesus. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I will put my faith in Jesus. How do you overcome? Put your faith in Jesus. To him who overcomes, how? John says it. You know, it's believed that John wrote 1 John after Revelation, that John got back and wrote 1 John later, even older. And then John writes that book and goes, oh, I remember those words, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. This is how you overcome, putting your faith in the Son of God. You are more than a conqueror. You are more than an overcomer in Christ Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. And do you hear the promise? It's so unique. This promise is so beautiful. He goes, you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. I take that in. You know, the Bible begins in a garden. The Bible begins with man walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, enjoying him, having relationship with him. Man sinned, man rebelled, man disobeyed God. And so God says, I love you. I have to kick you out of this garden. Why? Well, there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. We ate the wrong tree first. What happened is we were forever, forever, really, died. He goes, you'll die. There's a curse placed on you. I can't have you eat of the tree of life now in this state. I can't have you eat of the tree of life and forever be sealed in this state. It's crazy to think God in his love kicked us out of the garden. God says, I love you so much, I can't let you eat of the tree of life in this position. So what do you do? He kicked us out and he put angels to guard it. And here's the point. Ever since then, we've been on a hunt to get back to the garden, to get back into the presence of God. We, we start in a garden, we're going to end in a garden. We, we see Jesus praying in a garden. We see Jesus praying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. We see this like beginning scene of the garden, this middle scene of the garden, this end scene of the garden, and this garden desire. What is that? What do I mean by that? It means back to walking and talking with God in the garden. It means back to intimacy and fellowship and union with God, enjoying God. We are kicked out of the garden, and that's what we're longing for. What you are longing for right now is that garden experience, is that tree of life. And here's the point. Since Jesus died, the curse of sin, hell, death placed on him, removed from me. Since he'll come back and make that redemption finalize, you and I one day now can eat of the tree of life, not in the same state we're in. The promise is, church, do you know this, that you will eat of the tree of life if you overcome? Like you, you will eat of the tree of life. I will eat of the tree of life. To him who overcomes. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Can we just talk about this? In heaven you eat. I love that. Like, thank you, God. You know, Jesus even said, hey, you will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over a meal. Jesus said, I will not eat of, I will not eat of this bread or drink of this cup until I do so again with you in paradise. What does that mean? I just love God. Well, I, I was reading a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn, and he's like, hey, why did God invent taste buds? Because God's just good. Because <laughs> God's just amazing. Because God wants us to enjoy him. Jesus was always caught sitting down with a meal with someone. And he goes, you know what? You're going to have in heaven this promise of eating and the tree of life, what our parents should have eaten the first time. And I'm just so thankful that what we saw in the garden, what we thought was lost, when you read Paradise Lost, and you go, it's lost, it's gone. But we see paradise regained here. We see the tree of life regained because of another tree, the cross of Jesus. That you and I can eat of this tree of life because of the cross of Jesus. And you know what we do? When we take communion every week, we're just rehearsing and getting ready for this meal. When we eat of the, the bread 
and remember how Jesus' body was broken, when we drink of the cup and remember that his blood was shed for my forgiveness of sins, we're just rehearsing for this meal that we're gonna have one day with Jesus. One day we're gonna sit with Jesus in the garden, eat of the tree of life, feast with him, the marriage feast of the lamb that we'll read about in Revelation or you can read about. And there's this promise of just eating and being with Jesus. Church, listen, we are gonna take communion. It's a beautiful reminder for us today to say, Jesus, thank you for the tree. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you, you hung up there. You bled, you died on the cross for my sins. Your body was broken so I could be made whole. Your blood was shed so my forgiveness could be made clean. Thank you, Jesus. Listen, you guys have communion when you came in and we're gonna take it. And I just want you to pray over it and just thank Jesus. Paradise regained in your hand in a sense. Let this, this little cup with this little bit of juice and this little weird tasting wafer, let it be a reminder for us of a way greater meal to come. That you and I get to eat of the tree of life, man. Listen, this is for those who believe in Jesus. There's no need to remember something you don't believe in. But can I just remind you what you're holding? Jesus, what do you say? He goes, remember, remember. What does he say to this church? Remember your first love. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember, do those first works. What we have in our hand is the great remembrance. We're just remembering Jesus, the sacrifice he made. We're thanking him. We're praising him. And let this be a time of sweet just worship and intimacy with you and Jesus. Jesus, today I want to return back to you, my first love. Jesus, I'm tired of placing other things above you in my life. Jesus, this is a symbol, this is a symbol for me today to say, I'm returning to you, my first love. I repent. I want to do the first works. I want there to be intimacy again with you, Jesus. This is that time to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray for you guys. I'm going to ask that as you are ready, we're going to play worship. Just take, eat, and drink, and just remember Jesus. Do what he said this moment, and remember your first love. Amen. Let's pray, and we're going to take communion. Father, um, we are just so humbled and thankful. We're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for the tree, the cross, what you died on so we could one day have the tree of life. We're thankful that paradise was not forever lost. It's regained. We'll have this in paradise, it says, with you. Jesus, I ask them that you just would be so present as we take this. Or we just want to confess sin. Just God, things that have taken your place in our lives, we just want to let go of. Lord, I ask that you purify our thoughts, purify our thinking, our actions. Jesus, for anyone who's just done, says, I'm done, I'm done. Sin is ruining me. It feels addictive. It's hurting me. It's killing me. Lord, I just ask that you just move, that right now we would all return to our first love. So we just want to invite you here as we take communion to thank you and to celebrate you. In your precious name, Jesus, amen.